For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The grass withers. The word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we once again ask that you would, by your spirit, open this short letter to us and guide us both individually and as a congregation so that the word of Christ might dwell richly in us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an odd sermon. I wrote it a year ago, over a year ago. Uh, 2021 July is where my notes were dated from. But I, I still agree with it today. We're going to be looking really at just one clause today, a grammatical point which will make some uh, practical requirements from us. As we get now to look at this, uh, this series of qualifications for elder, uh, the parallel found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and much of the flavor of these qualifications found in the book of Acts when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. But as we come to this particular set of the requirements for elder, You've heard me, many of you, say it before. If we had to boil all the requirements down to one requirement for elder, Paul would say the requirement is an elder must be blameless. What does that mean? We, we hear blameless, we want to say sinless perfection. And then we realize that we would have no one to put forward for elder or pastor Ever. The good news is there is one who is sinlessly perfect in his blamelessness, and he is not simply an elder, he's the king of the church. But who are we going to put forward for local eldership? They must be, Paul says, blameless, and he can't therefore mean sinlessly perfect. So what does this word mean? We'll try to unpack it more in the weeks ahead. But I think two things are important for us to consider in regards to this. First, that in Scripture, the one who is accepted by God is the one who is humble 
and contrite and repentant. So at the very least, a blameless elder has to be those things. And secondly, what God himself says in terms of blamelessness. It's not the same exact word because it's a word used in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. But our God once said of a man who was a sinner like you and I, this man is blameless. What did God say? He said of Job, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. (coughs) Excuse me. One who fears God and shuns evil. I think that's God's definition of blameless. Fear of the Lord and shunning evil. And then put those two thoughts I've given you together. A sinner who fears God and shuns evil will be swift to fall to his knees and seek God's forgiveness when he is aware of his sin. And with regards to other humans, to his neighbors, as he becomes aware of sins against them, he will also be swift to make amends. Uh, Think of Zacchaeus when he was converted. He not only repented before Christ, but he was swift to make amends before other people. More than what he had taken. I think if we take all these things together, we have an idea of what Paul is saying. An elder is one who should set the example before the church of repentant humility before God in the pursuit of holiness. It's still a heavy requirement, but it's not sinless perfection. Now, Paul's going to unpack what this looks like in various areas of life. He's going to unpack it in terms of uh, the humbly repentant man who fears God and shuns evil in the home. Verse 6. In character. Verses 7 and 8. And in doctrine. Verses 9 and following. And Lord willing, we'll come to all of those in the next... Well, my plan is two weeks. But we'll see. We'll see. This week, I want to hit pause there as we think of uh, this basic requirement, one of being blameless in, in character, in doctrine, and at home. And I want to consider it in terms of a conditional clause that we almost find in our text. This is what struck me a year ago that led me to write this sermon a year ago uh, is a conditional clause. Do you remember what a conditional clause is? It's a a grammatical phrase that has a condition. Fancy, isn't it? The, The most common one is if, then. Now, in both English and Greek, that's the most common conditional clause. If, then. And in both English and in Greek, if you have the beginning of the conditional clause, you must have a conclusion. Now, it's not always explicitly there. Not every time that you say if, do you follow it up explicitly 
with the word then. But it must always be implied if I were to start talking about a conditional clause there has to be a then, doesn't there? What then? Even if I don't use the word then. Alright, so let's look at our text. There's an if. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for... That's not a then. For is another clause. It's another phrase. Where's the then? What's the conclusion to tie to the if? Has Paul just left us hanging? And did Paul forget something? Did the Holy Spirit have a a then and Paul messed up? Or did the Holy Spirit have a then and then in church history, the then fell out and we lost it? I, I sat down a year ago and charted out all these sentences in the Greek... You know, the diagrams, remember those? The line with the slash and the and then the dots and the... I, I did that. Deb loves doing that. She'll go and do it this afternoon, probably. I did it with the Greek and the Hebrew, because I was determined to find where this then went. And you know where it is. It's not in verse 6. It's not in verse 7. You don't find it in verses 8, 9, or 10. It's found in verse 5. And even there, it's implied. This is the conditional clause if I make explicit the implication that Paul is making here. If a man is blameless in all these areas, then appoint him an elder in his city. Go and do all the work. If you can remember how to do it. If you can't, call Deb. And she'll probably offer to come over to your house and do it with you. Because Deb loves these things. Maybe she'll do a Zoom thing and you can all watch her diagram it on the whiteboard or whatever that's called. Do the work. That, that's the only then I can find in chapter 1 of Titus that grammatically fits with the if of our verse. You think I'm all making a big deal out of nothing. But there has to be a then with the if. And if the Holy Spirit gave us an if, he requires of us the then. It was required of Titus long ago. Titus went to Crete. He had a commission. The commission was set things in order. And the first thing you have to do, Titus, to accomplish this is put elders over every city. Was he just left to do that any old way? Titus, good luck. And Titus goes to a city and says, I think I'll do it by popularity contest. Or I think I'll investigate what this city of Crete does in electing select men and select women. And then I'll use that in the church. No, Paul tells Titus not only the commission appoint elders but also the way 
to appoint elders. He is to look. If a man is blameless in these areas, then appoint him over that local congregation. And Titus, in appointing those elders, if you can remember several weeks back, when we were in Titus last, the appointing of the elders doesn't set everything in order for the church forever. What Titus is doing is setting in order the structure for the local congregation to keep setting elders up generation after generation so that they might keep guarding the truth and setting things in order. And so what Titus is commanded, it's a conditional command. It's a conditional command. If this, then you do that. And it's for Titus, and it's for us. If a man is blameless in these ways, appoint him an elder. Well, as I was thinking through those things, again, a year ago, and, and about every third month since I wrote this sermon, I've pulled it out and challenged myself with it and asked myself questions, and it's still the same sermon. After a year, I think I changed three sentences, maybe, in the whole thing. And as I did that, then the rest of this sermon, I want to draw out for us, okay, here's this conditional command, if this, then that. What does that mean, practically speaking, for us? More than just grammar, in practice, what does it require of us? And I I have several things here that it means we can't do, and several things that I think it requires of us. So let's start with the negatives. If a man is blameless, then appoint him means we can't do several things. First, it means we can't appoint based on programs and strategies and and visions, which is exactly what we here in America like to do. Every couple of years, maybe we need to have, um, I've been asked this in an elders meeting, not at our church, not at our church, but before I was here, I was asked this with the pastor of a church at an elders meeting, what is your five-year goal? And then from the five-year goal, which by the way, the, the pastor and myself were both like, preach the gospel, evangelize and disciple, didn't know there was supposed to be more than those things, that's plenty of work to start with, but, but then the follow-up to the five-year plan was going to be, let's put together a vision statement for our church that's a little fresher than what we had 20 years ago, and move accordingly. And when we start thinking that way, then we start looking for leadership that way. Oh, well, that person's really good with marketing. So that would be good. That person's just a real uh, uh, friendly person. They might have no sense of doctrine whatsoever. But they would fit this goal we have to accomplish. But Titus isn't told to go to Crete and use the Cretan methods for growing the church. He's told to go to Crete and appoint elders that fit God's description, blameless in these ways. And the Cretan society did not prize these ways. 
that's the very reason why what we look at next week about in the home is going to be repeated in chapter 2 about in everyone's home. Because the Cretans didn't agree. And Titus was to teach something countercultural. So it means, if then, means we can't appoint based on agendas and programs and things like that. Titus and we are to appoint those who fit King Jesus' qualifications and trust King Jesus to use those men to build his church. It's as simple as that. The second thing it means we can't. We can't appoint based on, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two sides of a coin here. We can't base, uh, appoint based on young blood or the other side of the coin, the way it's always been. This is another thing we love to do in America. Both, both sides of this coin, right? In America, you'll hear people say, oh, we need to get some new blood in here. We need some young guys in here who will understand our culture better. Because sinful culture changes every five years. And sinners aren't the same as they were five years. That, that's the underlying thought, isn't it? We need young people who will understand sin better than the old people because you old people just don't understand our culture. That doesn't sound like God's word. That doesn't sound like God's word at all. Sin is sin. And the older you are, the more you probably see your sin as it really is. Certainly the longer you've been a believer and the further you are in your sanctification, the more of your own sin you're aware of. But let's think about the other, the flip side of that coin. In America, some churches, it's not the young mentality. It's the, let's not do anything that will change anything. So you might have some really qualified men. But we're not going to change the way we've been doing things. We're not going to add younger people to the mix. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is what our church has done. Bear in mind, I'm, I'm speaking here of the church in America. Then again, we are a church in America. And as we've been thinking about with Titus, we are not immune to cultural captivity. So we need to just be aware of these things. A third thing, and this is where my conscience is pricked about myself the most. If then means we can't appoint based on circumstances or perceived circumstances or hypothetical predictions of circumstances. And that's something we also often do in the American church. I, I can think I have two men's faces in my mind right now that 20 years ago I voted against and I would have absolutely said, do they fulfill the biblical qualifications? No question. But I don't think it's the right circumstances in their lives right now. And the question is, 
is Titus given permission to think like that in this conditional command? No, he's not. He's asked, does this person fulfill these requirements? Then, appoint him. And Titus, Titus wasn't a young man who didn't know what he was doing, and therefore Paul doesn't bother having him assess the person's circumstances. We think of Titus as a young intern. But remember, he'd been with Paul for over a decade at this point, maybe more. He'd been a full minister for over a decade. He'd been enough of a minister in his own right who could be trusted that when Paul needed someone trustworthy to set Corinth in order, he sent Titus. If someone could assess life and predict circumstances, surely Pastor Titus would be such a man. But Paul doesn't leave that wiggle room in this conditional command. If this, then a point. In other words, with all of these camps so far, we're being shown by this conditional command that we can't add to God's qualifications. We can't add to God's qualifications. And we like to do that. We, most of us wouldn't say, no, we don't, we don't want a man who fits these qualifications. What we want to say is, we want a man who fits these qualifications and is great with marketing. But then what we end up doing in practice is, well, so-and-so, his leadership at home over his children, uh, I mean, it's not horrible, but it's not epic. But he's great with marketing. So-and-so might not have a very firm grasp of doctrine, and I've never heard him teach a, a word in my life. But he's great with outreach. We, we end up giving more weight to the things we add to God's requirements than we give to God's requirement itself. And that's why it's such a dangerous thing to approach the election of elders. The election of elders. I, I think that's what Titus was setting up. I don't believe when Titus went and appointed, Titus walked into a town and said, you, you, and you. Hey, the rest of you, listen to them. They're the elders now. That would be Episcopal form of government. Roman Catholic Church, Episcopal, some other groups. I believe what we're being shown here with Titus is him going in and training men and then the local congregation acknowledging God's call of them through voting, which is a, don't get scared by this word, it's a Presbyterian concept of local eldership appointed from within instead of Episcopal, which is appointing from without to you. So don't get scared by my using that word. Presbytros is just the word for elder in our text. Just like bishop is the word for overseer. Don't get scared by bishop. But but Titus is setting up a standard here. 
He's training elders who will train other elders who will train other elders. And the church is being told, this is what you look for when you appoint them over you. Well, what about the, what we must do? If we can't add to the qualifications, there, there are three things that it seems to me we must pursue. If, if blameless, then appoint requires that we must pursue these three things. First, we must trust God's standard of eldership. Because we're always going to look at this situation and say, hey, we're a small church. And if we want to grow, we've got to have the guy who's got the plan. And what this conditional command is telling us is, Christ is the one with the plan. And we need to trust We need to trust his standard, which means trusting him. If he says so-and-so meets these requirements, appoint him, then it's an act of faith in Christ that he will provide us with those people who can. I hate to use the word at all. Market? Uh, Make us visible. Make us seen. Lead us in outreach. Whatever the thing might be. Trust trust King Jesus through his standard of eldership. Let me throw an aside in here. At both... Well, two out of three of the churches I interned in before coming here... And in this church, I've had the same conversation with wonderful, godly people. It goes something like this. If, uh, if the elders are the ones interviewing the candidates to see if they meet the qualifications, then my vote as a member of the congregation is just a rubber stamp. And I'm just rubber stamping what the elders tell us is already qualified. And I find that very sad on the one hand. On on the one hand, it's good that we trust the elders we have. And it's foolish to ignore their thoughts on the life and doctrine of any member in the church. Remember that it is the elders who are to give an account for your souls. Isn't that terrifying? No one should... No one should want that unless the Holy Spirit has called you to it. It should be as simple as that. Because otherwise it's a terrifying thought. Elders have to give an account. So who better to gauge other men's doctrine and practice than the people already established to give an account? But that being said, it's not a rubber stamp. If, if the elders put a name before you and you say, I don't think so, th- then it's not right for you to just vote yes and rubber stamp it. You have a responsibility before God then to ask yourself, why? Why do I think the elders made a mistake? Well, your response might be something like, well, I was at that barbecue at the neighborhood, at the neighborhood barbecue last weekend, and he blew up 
and he lashed out. And he disgraced the gospel. Well, maybe the elders didn't see that. Maybe they weren't there. Maybe they're not aware of this side of him. Maybe they made a mistake. What are you supposed to do? Just rubber stamp the elders? No, of course not. You're to follow Matthew 18. You're to go to the brother and confront him. And if he rejects your confrontation, you should then I, I would encourage you to take one of the elders as your witness. Two of the elders, if there are two, as your witnesses and confront him again. And maybe the elders during that confrontation say, you're right, he's not qualified, we're removing his nomination. Or maybe the elders say, no, you misunderstood whatever, and, uh, and we're still putting him forward. And then you have to ask yourself, are the elders wrong? Fallible men that they are. And then you need to vote your conscience. It's not a rubber stamping. And so please don't rubber stamp what the elders put forward. But this conditional command does require this of you. Not rubber stamping the elders, but listening to God's standards. And if God's standards fit the man, then you need to vote yes, even if it's not your favorite person in the world or whatever. But assess, why is it that your heart goes against this? Well, uh, the first thing we have to do, if then we need, means we must trust God's standard for eldership. I think secondly, it means we must trust the man himself and his wife. Trust them to be able to look at circumstances wisely. See, see, I know for myself, when I have voted no because of someone's circumstances, it has been out of love. Both the men I can think of were good friends. I respected them highly. It was out of love. Well, I think this will be too much for them. But here's the problem. God doesn't list that as a requirement. And in the requirements, he has provided for difficult circumstances. I hope you understand that. When when God says a man must be blameless at home in these ways, you're not seeing a man who has gone through life floating along, in an ease of perfect living and happens to have a good marriage and children. You're seeing a man who has this relationship and respect from his wife and his children despite living in a fallen, broken world. So that what we're assessing is Despite sorrow, grief, hardship, temptation, has this man shown himself to be blameless anyway? And when he has failed to act out in wisdom in these scenarios, has he shown himself repentant quickly and wise enough to grow? This blameless qualification is God's provision for us to not 
feel like out of love we have to predict the future of the individual, but rather trust God that this individual and his wife will know when they need to say, this might be too much. Or, I need a a slight break. Or, Or even possibly to say, I shouldn't have my name put forward. Because we don't think our circumstances are right. That's that's where the circumstances come in. God has gifted someone, and that someone has been gifted in such a way that they can assess these things or seek wisdom when they know they're not wise enough. So, So my encouragement, if you're struggling with a candidate, a nominee, we don't use candidate, we use nominees better. If there's a nominee and you're struggling, my encouragement is for you to go and talk to the individual. Just because the elders interview the person doesn't mean you can't. Mary Ellen Bricker told me of a couple of instances where she knocked on someone's door and said, sorry to disturb, hopefully you're not eating your meal. Can I come in and talk to you? And then she put them through a theological exam. Good for her. Maybe more of our struggling hearts need to do that. It doesn't have to always just be theology. It could be, have you thought your parents are getting up there in age and and there's health issues coming down the road and maybe some funerals. Have you considered whether this is the best time for you to be put forward as elder? That would be a legitimate thing to ask. But then if the person is biblically qualified, we should be able to say, okay, they prayed about it for a week. They got back to me and said, thank you. I've really thought about that. That we really important that you care about our care for our parents. But we think we should be put forward. He should be put forward still. And then if we don't have a reason to say he's not biblically qualified, then I think we need to say, well, we trust then that the one God has qualified, God has also provided with this wisdom. So we must trust God's standard for eldership. And then we must trust, trust the qualified man that God has provided him with wisdom. And then third and finally, and this is stepping away from all of the, This is, I get, this has been a kind of bureaucratic, not bu- bureaucratic is not the right word organizational it's been kind of an organizational sermon hasn't it not my favorite to preach not your favorite to hear i I get that let let's apply the gospel some to all of this then because god's word even when it's talking about the organization the structure and the qualifications is in the context of the reign of king jesus and his gospel. So, so as I prayed about that, and I prayed about this a year ago, and this past year, it's almost like God has pressed this point on my own heart more and more, and convicted me of failing on this po- this last point quite a bit towards three of you in this room, particularly over the past seven years. I think if it's if this man is qualified, then appoint means we must 
cultivate a church atmosphere of compassion. What, what do I mean by that? And how does that tie into everything we've been saying? Well, well, I think the compassion we already have when we're trying to gauge these things based on other qualifications, especially, for example, circumstances, is compassion, right? We don't want to appoint someone who's going to have too hard of a time with it. But what underlies that? It's a thought that once you're voted in and appointed, come hell or high water, you're stuck. Don't, don't we kind of think that way with elders and deacons? Elders and deacons definitely think that way about themselves. Well, both your parents died. Brothers, forgive me. In the past seven years, I've served with an elder who lost both of his parents in a very short period of time and had other pressures. And the best I did was, do you need to do less as an elder right now? Well, that wasn't nothing. I don't think it was enough. I've served with an elder who was... Uh, whose wife received a diagnosis that was going to require many stops at the, at the clinic. I, I can't remember if I even asked. I, I might have. Worked with an elder who was in the ER like four or five times in one month. What in the world was he still doing at the elders meeting? And any number of other things, Jim, I could apologize to you for. The real shame of this for me is thinking back to 10 years ago. I was serving as a non-voting part of an elder board as an intern. And one of the elders, his wife died. And a couple of that elder board, a couple of the men went over, took him aside and said, after the funeral, of course, not, not the first thing they did, but after the funeral was over, they took him aside and they said, brother, we don't want to see you at our meeting on Tuesday, but we'd love to come by and visit you on Thursday. And we want you to take as much time as you need before coming back to meetings, without thinking you need to do any teaching, without thinking you need to lead worship, take your time, you let us know when you're ready. He took three months, after three months I was gone by this point, but he came back and said to them, brothers, I I need to step down completely. And today he's serving as an elder of that church. But he took a few years off. Right there in my first internship, I, I had an example set before me of a compassionate eldership. Do you see what they remembered as elders of that flock that perhaps even in our own congregation we have forgotten as elders at times? That our fellow elders are first and foremost and always Sheep. 
But you see, I, I think we start trying to foresee the future and vote accordingly because we think if we don't catch it now before the man's appointed, he's stuck. Instead of saying, God has given a multiplicity of elders in each local church to partially shepherd each other. Because when hands are laid on you and you are appointed as an elder or a deacon, you do not cease to be a sheep as you enter into under-shepherding. If we cultivated such an atmosphere... And that's not going back on the point about the man getting the decision. I'm not saying the elder board comes in and says, you're off. No, if God has granted the wisdom to this man and to his wife. But I think perhaps what we need to do more often is sit down with the husband and the wife and say, take as much time as you need. And can we visit you next Thursday? I'm convinced that there are three things, beautiful, beautiful expressions of the gospel that would flow out of this one expression of the gospel. If we cultivated at the leadership level this kind of compassionate shepherding for one another, I'm convinced three things would result in the life of the church. Such an atmosphere would result in more qualified men being willing to be nominated. Because they would know that just by accepting a nomination and maybe being appointed doesn't mean that if the worst things happen in your life, you're stuck. But rather, you would maybe be willing. I've known a number of men over the past 30 years who were qualified who, in some instances, had 90% of the congregation asking why they weren't in office and who refused to be put forward. And a big part of it was fear on their part that circumstances would happen and they'd be stuck. But imagine if their names had been put forward. You see, there is no elder that has ever served who doesn't have hard circumstances. This atmosphere might lead to more men being willing to be put forward. Secondly, as a congregation, we'd be less prone to try to foretell the future before we vote. We could trust God's standards with peace in our hearts, knowing, knowing that this person is still going to be shepherded by the others. And third, I'm convinced that it would result in a whole church, a whole congregation, living more deeply in, a, in an atmosphere of compassion. That if elders, and I'm not saying none of you, by the way, as elders, have had compassion. Don't misunderstand that at all, please. But the more we cultivate such an atmosphere, at the leadership level, the more we will, as a congregation, know what love and compassion in the reflection of King Jesus, our Good Shepherd, looks like. 
And therefore we will cry with one another more effectively as a whole church. And as we cry more effectively with one another in tears, we will also then rejoice more more enthusiastically with one another in in the good days as well. The gospel applied to a grammatical clause. What a difference it could make. What a difference it can make when taken seriously. Beloved, if a man is blameless, then appoint him. And let us trust to the King Eternal to shepherd him and shepherd us. Let's.